This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series talking to people at the forefront of change. But you should never underestimate the power of a conversation. It can reframe the way we think, influence the information we go on to seek and the conversations we go on to have. This is all very much part of the change process. My guest today is Pamela Uba. Pamela is the current Miss Ireland. She represented the country in Puerto Rico back in March when Miss Poland eventually took the title. But Pamela has taken so much from the experience that went way beyond winning first place. It's opened up so many doors to the medical scientist. And as you'll hear, she's going with the flow and enjoying every second. We discussed the negative slant so-called beauty pageants can get, that they're demeaning to women and only celebrate one attribute. But as you'll hear of the people Pamela met, and she is the same, there was so much more than the aesthetic. And just because someone looks a certain way or enjoys glamour, there shouldn't be an assumption about their character. And behind every beautiful smile, there's a story. Pamela grew up in direct provision. As a teenager, she took on the legal aspect of trying to secure a home for her mother and siblings. And when she was told her education would not go beyond secondary school, she chose to fight that too and get herself a degree and then a master's. This is such an inspiring, though heartbreaking story at times. Pamela revisits traumatic experiences But ultimately, she has emerged a strong and brilliant woman who now speaks out so that there's learning from mistakes made with Pamela and her family's experience. And she now revisits children in direct provision to impress upon them the importance of education and give them access to technology. She is one very impressive individual and it was great to get to sit down with her for this conversation. Pamela Uba, you're very welcome to Changemakers. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. We met doing a a Women's Day online chat and I was just blown away by you, your spirit, your story. So I'm so honoured that you agreed to come here because I know you're on an absolute whirlwind because (laughs) you are our current Miss Ireland. So your diary is absolutely jammed, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's it's great to be busy. Like you can't complain. I've had the best year and Hopefully that continues on into whatever I choose to do next. How did it all start? You started as Miss Galway and that was a mistake, was it? That wasn't your intention on that night. Um, Well, okay, the story, (laughs) the story keeps kind of getting lost there a little bit. It was kind of like I was a bartender at a nightclub that was running Miss Galway. And that's when I found out about the whole Miss Ireland Uh, competition and I was serving one of the judges during their interview days 
and they thought I was the next contestant and um, the judge actually encouraged me to enter one of the years after finding out that I actually wasn't a participant for this year and it's really funny because the same judge who said oh why don't you enter also encouraged me to do modeling and it was from there that I started to actively try and get into all these things and now I model for the same agency she works on and I entered Miss Galway just kind of like how she envisioned it so it was it was really nice and I met her afterwards and she was so so proud amazing so that was the start of it all and even in researching for today all over the place it's like Ireland's first black Miss Ireland Mm -hmm. how do you feel about that obviously it's a it's an achievement but are you sometimes conflicted that you just want to be Miss Ireland you know in this day and age I suppose it is empowering to know that I am a woman of color in a country where I'm a minority and doing amazing things and it's empowering for me and for many many others out there so I totally I totally take that on board and I'm really careful about that responsibility that I also have in embarking on this journey at the same time you know there's so many labels and everyone just kind of wants to be themselves so it is kind of hard in that sense but you know what I think for now, I am good with, you know, trying to be that that woman for lots of young girls out there that need to see themselves represented. And I think that's important right now to have that representation out there. And what was the Miss World experience like? <laughs> it was it was a whirlwind as well. It's Miss World is totally different from Miss Ireland. Like it's very, very large scale. You're competing with absolute I don't know what to call them they're just powerhouses of women like they are so educated they are so brilliant stunning women and and then there's little old me (laughs) coming along trying to do my own thing you know and it's this world is just a way that helped me to come out from myself and see that there are many different kinds of women out there and we're all doing amazing things in our individual fields and same as myself and I was so proud because we actually got selected to get into the top 40 of Miss World uh, which is a great achievement for Ireland especially out of uh, 98 women it was great well you're just as qualified (laughs) um, just as stunning absolutely you earned your place there what is the setup like do you fly in share a room with somebody else is it all glamour yes so you fly in this year it was in uh puerto rico and to to be honest because of the pandemic it was a very weird year because we were meant to have our final in december but because of covid it ended up that we had to postpone and we had to fly back in march so Yes, we came back and we were set up to be paired with another country. So I was with Miss England at the time. Uh, so you're always rooming with somebody else and hopefully the language barrier won't be too much an issue. Uh, most people speak English, but there is some other countries there that it might be quite difficult. But you still get to learn a lot uh, about loads of different people. Like I was super close with um, Miss Puerto Rico, Miss Venezuela, like all people that I didn't think 
that I would necessarily be really close with is who ended up being my like best friends over there. So it was a great experience. Some of them are coming over um, maybe end of year to see each other. So it's, it's really good, you know. Um, we got to do many activities, um, including our Beauty with a Purpose Gala, which is very, very central to what Miss World does. We raise a lot of money to help um, different causes. It doesn't matter what cause it is. You know, Miss World has done amazing things everywhere, all around the world for loads of children over years. So it's great to be part of that. And our, obviously our lovely final at the end. And it do you remember that night vividly how did you keep your your head together it must have been such an overwhelming and exciting experience i think when you come up to the night of the final uh, at that stage you kind of have to say to yourself you've done everything you can and now it's all about going on stage and walking across that stage very proud of what you've achieved so far and showing off your country you know really like my name was not Pamela during Miss World. I was Ireland, you know, so I literally was wearing Ireland across my chest and walking there with whole of Ireland behind me. And that's such a proud moment, regardless of where you came in that night. And I just I loved it. I had a beautiful yellow gown. I just, you know, I looked probably the best I've ever looked. And it was it was amazing. I really enjoyed it. And what has changed? Because people always criticize this beauty pageant world. But as you said, even the tagline is beauty and purpose. And I've been thinking a lot about it, obviously, coming up to this conversation. And I always think the answer is not to stop doing something like this. But just because you have beauty doesn't mean you don't have intelligence and heart. Yeah. And I think people always have to apologize for looking a certain way or there's assumptions just because somebody is into fashion and taking photos of themselves for social media mm -hmm. that they don't have anything else to offer. And that just simply isn't a fact. You're, you're living proof of that. Absolutely. There's so many women out there that feel like when people look at them, it's all they see is our bodies. And, you know, there's all this objectifying women. And but we're so, so much more than just our bodies and what we have on the outside it's actually what's on the inside that matters the most and what you do with the person that you are and you know before I was Miss Ireland I was a medical scientist so like and I even have a master's behind me so you cannot tell me that I don't have intelligence behind me you know and other other than that I'm also an elder sister in the family of six kids you know I'm caring I I look after a lot of people in my family and then you also have my love of helping others and that really shone throughout my Miss Ireland journey. I didn't just pick any old thing to to take as my charity, you know. I picked something that I knew would have an impact on lots of children's lives and that's it about women, you know, just because we post pictures online and look a certain way it doesn't mean that's all there is to us you just you need to get to know a person before you make any judgment and is there more diversity in body shape or type of person 
have they got rid of the bikini section are there have there been positive changes yeah absolutely like we don't have a bikini section now i'm not giving out about the bikini section either because if you feel confident in your bikini body yes you should show that you know nobody should judge women for walking around in a bikini if that is what they choose to do um but no miss world decided that they want to portray us more like ambassadors for our country you know for somebody who wants to go out there and actively create change and they didn't feel it was necessary to have a bikini portion anymore so they got rid of it but yes every body shape is allowed every height um like i'm not very tall i'm five foot five i am not super skinny i am a size 10 curvy model and um i know people might think oh that's, that's still small but do you know what? I think that everybody's shape is okay. I, I remember saying this to my director one of the days. I was like, do I need to now lose weight? And this was the first conversation I had with them after my crowning. I was like, should I like hit the gym and get any smaller? And he was like, absolutely not. Um, you won because this is what you look like and this is who you are. And we don't want you changing that aspect of yourself. And it's probably another reason why I chose, let's say, Miss World, because I knew it was a competition where I wouldn't feel like I had to change everything about myself because knowing what society is like, I probably would have ended up being that girl that had the disorder and cared too much about what she looked like because that's what society was throwing at me at the time. Yeah, and I think we need to move the conversation on. I I think a lot of the campaigns we have now around real bodies in inverted commas i think it comes from a really good place we're showing cellulite we're showing stretch marks we're showing diversity of body shapes but that doesn't mean that some of the people that you may have met at miss world just because they're born seven foot with Mm -hmm. an athletic build that their body is any less real yeah and i think we need to just really empower women to choose what's right for them if they want to enter something like this let them if they want to show off their bikini body let them if they don't let them too and i think that's what female empowerment really is absolutely like i've seen recently um many different types of girls let's say entering these competitions i remember there was a very very short um miss universe uh australia that entered and she did amazing you know um there would have been a plus size model as well who entered one of these competitions before and i just you know i just clapped for her because i think that that is so important for people to see that beauty is not one standard beauty can be many many things you know um one a, a very very big title holder at the moment she's from india i remember she won her pageant and she actually got criticized a lot for gaining weight afterwards and people were given out to her saying why why do you look like this and nearly saying that the runner-up should have won because look she still looks the same and without realizing that she was also actually going through something she had um, an immune condition at the time that was affecting the way her body was fluctuating but regardless you know she came out and said you know this is who I am and regardless of whether I am a size six or a size 12, it shouldn't shouldn't matter to you, you know? And I, I absolutely applaud her confidence and the way she comes out 
um, owning who she is and not letting people's comments affect her because that is so important to understand that we as women, our bodies fluctuate. It's not like what I look like right now wasn't what I looked like last year. I can tell you that for sure. And I am absolutely okay with that because, you know, this is us. We're human. But do you think things like social media or even Miss World events mm-hmm. set the beauty ideal as one particular way or, or is it changing enough? I think nothing can change unless a society wants to change its mindset. And I think if us as a society um, went out there and, you know, said, no, th- we're not having this anymore. This is this is what real life is and came out there and showed their real selves then you know we'd be able to see more and more of that but if we keep the mindset of oh no this is what the world wants us to be and we never challenge that then we're never going to change but again i think you're allowed you're allowed like nice clothes Mm -hmm. you're allowed like to glam up and and Mm -hmm. take photos it doesn't mean that you're any less of a person and i sometimes think that that's somewhere in the conversation and that's still putting women down yeah no i absolutely agree like i love getting dressed up i sure you've seen seen what i do anyways but um i think the same time as much as i love getting dressed up i also like to to be chill and just be me and take all the makeup off so i think it's a balance you know and i think we shouldn't have to be one way or the other we should be able to choose who we are and what about then when the event came to an end, the, the winner is crowned. Is it a big night of celebration between all the girls? What happens then? Yeah, absolutely. Like I know she gets kind of whisked off to do all the press and stuff, but um, um, it was Miss Poland who won Miss World uh, for my year. And she is an amazing girl. Um, we celebrated her the following day at our little it was like a gallery event that we had um i get on with her really well like you know she's so nice and she'll still talk to you and still message you on instagram and everything and that's the thing you always want to see somebody who is a genuine nice person get to those places and i think if you know if one person wins as women we kind of all win do you know that's how i see it so um i think she's doing amazing in what she does and just because let's say I didn't win the title doesn't mean that like that's it my life's gonna go nowhere you know it's all it's an experience and you learn from that experience and then you take that to go on to new opportunities and that's what I'm doing did you surprise yourself in the experience um yeah like I I wasn't let's say I wasn't as outgoing before all of this happened you know I was quite a shy person I wouldn't even I've gone on, let's say, inst- Instagram and go s- on stories and talk about anything. I That was not me. I nearly had to force myself to do that at the start because I knew being crowned Miss Ireland, I'm going to have to speak to people. So I nearly trained myself by going on and just being me. And it's that's quite a hard thing to do. People, you know, and I totally understand that, you know, the fear of it, because it's not easy to go on there and like just be yourself and let people see your vulnerable side or any side of you really. So it was something that I had to be open to 
and learn and I'm getting better at it every every day and I realized from that that how much of a people person I actually am you know so it, it's something that was really cool to find that side of myself and it does give you a platform mm. as you say and your story was something that you began to tell over and over again how did that feel um I think with everything that went on um with let's say the black lives matter and even the way our system runs here with a direct provision i felt like i had to say something you know it's you can't have a voice and not use it what good is that you know so i really felt that it was a time where people needed to hear what is really going on and especially for somebody like me who grew up in this system and many others like me that are still there um, it was a challenging time in my life growing up in direct provision and it's challenging for many others that are still there right now um, and it's because of the way everything was being run at the time and people people nearly forgot about you and just left you there and you were kind of segregated even though you didn't want to be and you wanted to be in society you wanted to be you know making your footprint in the area you lived and you just weren't allowed to so i think i needed to voice that so people knew that that was what was going on and there was many many kids many adults there going through a lot you know you talk about mental health and depression you know how many suicides has there been in direct provision centers because of the way things went on lots you know so it's it's a very challenging topic to to be able to speak into the media about but it needed to be done i think and i think it's incredible that you represented that ireland the good the bad and the ugly the new ireland and taught us some lessons that were to be learned as a society as a collective mm -hmm. let's go back then a little bit through your life you left Nigeria as a child. Do you remember anything about life there or, or leaving? Um, so I am a Nigerian South African. So I was actually born in South Africa. Um, I never lived in Nigeria. So we moved from South Africa to Ireland when I was about, uh, it was about maybe 2004, I think. And then we got here and it was my mom and my three other siblings. So there was four of us and quite young because I'm the eldest. So they were like all toddlers really. And we ended up in the direct provision system. Now, we didn't realize that it was going to be something that would take years and years to, to get out of at the time. You know, we were told, oh, you go in, um, your case gets assessed and you'll be out in two years maybe. But that wasn't the case, you know. First of all, we were bounced around at the start from center to center. I lived in probably a caravan center for like a year and a half until I was moved to Mayo. And that's where I spent all my primary school and secondary school years. Um, and it was only until I was uh, in the senior cycle of the Leaving Cert and that was when I started kind of saying to my mom, what's going on, you know, and starting to understand because I didn't really understand what was going on. I was too young to to know and your parents want to shield you, so they don't really tell you. But I could see straight away that I was being treated quite differently from, let's say, my classmates. 
you know, I could see that I lived in a community that there was just like more of people that looked like me rather than a mixed community, you know, and then I started feeling embarrassed to bring my friends over to the house because I was like, okay, I have to go to this, the canteen to pick up food. Whereas when I go to my friend's house, the food is there in the house. So I was like, I don't know how they're going to view that or see that. So I, I just didn't bring them over. I just, I remember anytime I got dropped off, I usually asked them to drop me off at the back of the center so I can walk into, there was like a back entrance. So they wouldn't know that I lived in this um, direct provision center. So as a child, you can see already, I was playing things up in my mind saying something isn't right here. Um, to the point where um, I remember my I said to my mom, there's no point of me even doing the leaving cert. They're like, what, why? When, when I know that in the end of the day, I'm not gonna get to go to college, they'll probably send us back to, to South Africa and that'll be it. Um, and she she literally had to like shake me out of that and thank god that she did that because um i'm glad that i was able to do my leaving search and get the education that i now have but i really didn't see that as an option you know i wanted to be a, a doctor at the time and i was just like there's, there's no point you know the country doesn't want me i don't belong anywhere so what's the point um so I started going to the lawyers then at this stage and it was through this lawyer, it's a new lawyer that I got. She had explained to me that a lot of things went wrong with our case. Our other lawyer had basically robbed us of our money and did nothing, got our case thrown out of court for not filing things right and left it at that and never said a word to us, you know. Because it's a legal application, is it, to yeah. get permanent housing? Uh, to get residency you have to apply um, if you're not from the EU region so um, and within two years of getting this new lawyer everything changed for us and I, I, it was a letter I wrote to the government saying this is what happened this is what's going on now me and my siblings have been here our whole lives and have integrated like we weren't a family that just kind of stayed to ourselves I played GA football, my brother played soccer, you know, we were doing everything. I was singing at the summer festival. So the whole community knew our family very, very well. And they kind of all wrote reference letters for, for me at the time. Um, and it was through that that the, the Minister of Justice or the Department of Justice saw my letter and was like, all right, this is what's been going on and had replied to the lawyer saying, well, okay, so we'll give them their residency. But that took over 10 years to get to that point. And that's 10 years of being told um, you can't work even if you wanted to work. 10 years of being told that um, if you want to go to college, it's not a possibility when you finish school, that's the end of it really for you because you can't, you can't afford college tuition you know college tuition for somebody in my case at the time was paying international fees even though you're not international and that's kind of what I was forced to do in the first year and that's my mom raised that money to pay the fees um, and I got to go to college and I said to her look we'll try and get in and then I'll try and defer my my place and see what we can do in the meantime 
and luckily for me that was the end of it that year because we got our residency that year but it was a very very hard year for me having to even travel because Mayo to Galway like my residence was in Mayo and having to go to Galway to go to college I remember doing competitions I sing so I was doing singing competitions just to raise money to pay rent and all sorts of crazy things you know I was living off a small chicken breast for a week there as well it was like oh god <laughs> you know it was really hard quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And can you remember the day you wrote the letter and, 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 and what you said and how you felt? I was really young when I wrote that letter. I think I just presented it to my lawyer at the time and added the references as well. Um, it was, I think it was titled in Through the Eyes of a 15-year-old at the time. So I was 15 when I wrote the letter. And literally, I, I just told them like this is where I live this is where I'm from you know this is my home and it's really upsetting actually thinking of it right now because you know I poured my heart out on that letter saying to them I don't know what we'll do if we have to to leave like there is nothing for me and knowing that at that stage I started nearly taking on the role of mom and dad as well because my mom stopped being able to bear it all by herself. So I was the one doing all the research. I was the one going to the lawyers, you know, even I said during my leave search year. So it's it was crazy time for my family. <laughs> and like really hard to keep hope and strength mm -hmm. together for 10 years of living a separate life and a, a sort of a in a transition situation what should be a transition situation like it's safe there's shelter but it's not a home and it's not allowing you to be a full member of oh. a community and as you no. say you were making these connections in school in GAA which were just being kept in a gated community it's just a horrible message to send to somebody time and time again and I can see what an impact it would have yeah absolutely like um I think I think the kids in school knew something was going on, but you know, they won't say it because they don't want to hurt your feelings either, but they knew that something was up as well. Um, like their parents definitely did because, you know, they'd even offer to come collect us or do certain things that they mightn't do for the other kids 
because they knew our situation. Um, you know, we were living off nine euros per week for a child and was it 19 euros for an adult, you know, so it wasn't easy. And when did things begin to change then? You got a, a new lawyer, but you found this person yourself mm-hmm. as a Leaving Cert student. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Um, so it, it was a female lawyer. Um, I remember presenting her the case file and she, the first thing she said was, oh my God, this is not right. Like, what the hell happened here? Do you know? And it's funny because when I think back on it, I I wasn't, we weren't the only family that this has happened to. So this has happened to many families where they're stuck in the system because you're told that it's supposed to take six months to a year to really fully assess someone. But that's not the case. It never happens. It usually families are left there for years and years. So I don't know what it was. was it pure luck or I can't even tell you because I know that she she refiled everything for us but I remember that letter that I wrote I sent it by email to like various people in the Department of Justice I had like googled everyone's work emails and found them and sent it off to them and it somehow landed on somebody's desk eventually like it took I was 18 by the time we got our residency, so it took three years for anyone to look at that email. So I don't know what's going on. And, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm judging people that don't find this fight because, of course, they don't. Your mom, you said, because she had other commitments with your with your siblings. Not everybody has that ability to say we're going to make that 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 change. And I know that's a reflection on you and your strength, mm-hmm. but it's not a reflection on those who don't and, yeah. and, and suffer. Yeah, because I think my mom was lucky due to the fact that I kind of grew up in Ireland. So I understood the system and how, you know, even how Irish people spoke. My mom may not have done that as well as I did at the time. And that's what affects a lot of people, you know, as well. They might come here and there's a language barrier and they just don't get how everything works because things might work differently. And then you also have the added frustration of, let's say, certain people that come from countries um, where they they probably were very well educated themselves and they probably, you know, you you might have had doctors, engineers, lawyers, but they fell on some some sort of hard time, whether it was war or whatever it was, you know, that's what landed them here. And they get frustrated then sitting, staring at the same four walls, like we all kind of witness what that looks like during the pandemic, you know? So now imagine having to do it for 10 years of your life, like literally in your room, because that's all you have usually when you're living in a center, you have your room and that's your, little space you know and in some cases let's say if it was a single man or woman or maybe a family that just had like a one parent one child sometimes you're sharing that room with a stranger and that's your your whole space yes that really happens 
Wow. And is there any sort of support? Like, as you said, this is a traumatic experience, regardless of how you left. But some people are actually leaving trauma. Is there any mental health supports for people? Not a whole lot. Like, not. I don't remember anyone coming in to check on us or offer us any kind of counseling or anything. Like, no. And the basics of having your own home and your own privacy and your own place to make food and gather together as a family unit is so important and all of that is stripped away as well as the ability to have independence to have your own money to have your own work to have your own connection yeah that's huge I, and i think it's important because in the end of the day i know people will give out and say for sure people are coming here and doing this and that but wouldn't it not be better if people that did come just ended up working and looking after themselves rather than have this system that you know there's lots of profit being made from these as well they're not like non-for-profit situations these are private um companies that are making money out of keeping people in that place for a long time wouldn't it not be better to have people assessed within a year and tell them sure okay you're staying or you're going either way a year you know you're not taking that much time away from them and then letting them go out there and contribute to society isn't that not better for everyone who's involved you know yeah. i certainly think it is and i have heard whispers of you know centers and what the owners are getting a week and then what's actually being given to the families and it just it, it, it just doesn't make any sense and it shouldn't be allowed to go on Tell me a bit about college then. This was a very tough time while you were still studying as an international student. Is that right? So what sort of fees are we talking about? So I was classified as an international student because there was no other classification for me at the time. I was not considered Irish. I was not considered EU, even though I went to primary and secondary school in Ireland. So they they said, no, you're international. That's it. Um, I chose GMIT um, because of the fact that an IT will be cheaper than uh, a university. Uh, you know, all these things factored. So even if I wanted to do medicine, that factored into my decision finances. That will I actually be able to afford it? And the answer was no. And the cheapest I could afford was it was 9,000. And I couldn't really afford it, you know, and that was the cheapest that it was going for at the time. And that's just your tuition that you pay the college. That has nothing to do with buying your laptop, your utensils that you need, um, your rent, your food, none of that. That was just what you paid the college to actually attend. So your mom managed to raise some money for the tuition fees. The rest fell on you, understandably so. So how did you manage? Um, I was working cash at hand jobs you know um doing whatever i could really to um to be able and my boyfriend helped me a lot at the time as well um letting me stay with him as well so it was challenging you know um i did a competition in the college where i earned, um where i sang and i won that and it gave me some money they actually have a little frame they made for me at gmit at the time when i won it uh but yes that literally paid um, my rent at the time and then 
student assistance fund as well uh, because I was a special case they were only giving out 200 but they gave me an extra two because of the fact that I was a special case and they had this little ex excess fund left but it's not not enough you know you live in Galway and granted maybe when I started college Galway wasn't as expensive as it is now but still quite expensive for somebody in my uh, position at the time um yeah so that's what I did I remember working at you know the promotional people on the street trying to get people into nightclubs like that's what I did until until I got my residency and moved on further in the years in college but yeah what do you remember about that day about getting your residency about getting your Irish passport about knowing that you had got what you wanted Oh, the day we got our residency, it was like relief. It was like, oh my God, this is actually over. You know, we can now start living. That's how it felt like. After 10 years. Yeah. That gen like, that was the start of my life, you know. Um, we could do, I could apply for proper work as well, because now I have a stamp for, I'm allowed to legally work, uh, which is great. I could also... Um, do things that other people might have taken for granted such as applying for the student grant <laughs> do you know um, so I was that's how I finished college through being able to apply for the student grant and get a normal job as well and how did you find all that because you were studying medical science so this is quite full on mm -hmm. all the while doing jobs here there and everywhere how did you manage it did you enjoy your course and and and, and find the study was doable um medical science is a hard course uh, you're gonna find it tough anyway it's full on with the hours it's not like maybe some other first year college courses where you'd have a few hours here and then a break no it's a full day full schedule because um, you also have practicals and labs and stuff and reports you have to do afterwards. I remember um, at one point there was like a CA, like an online CA that we had to do. And I, so I would start college maybe at nine and finish maybe at six or seven, depending on if I had labs. And then I would go to work at nine o'clock at night and finish at like one or two in the morning I remember what that night I kind of slept and my alarm didn't go off and I slept in past my CA and I was like absolutely in distraught and I went to my lecturer and I told her the situation now she knew I was working nights and I would work maybe so college is five days a week so I'd work three of those days at night as well so she knew that was going on in the background as well so and because i was generally a good student she let me off and um, with a similar grade overall at the end of the year but um yeah that was crazy <laughs> to be able to to say that that's what i was doing for a whole year like working going to bed at like two three going to college at nine and repeating yeah so you got the degree you then went on to get a master's in Trinity College in clinical chemistry. And then did you begin to do some some work? Um, so I got the degree and I went straight into work, actually. So I 
started working at the university hospital in Galway and I was doing that for four years before was it four years I started working no going to my master's within two years of working there because you have to the way my master's worked out is that you had to be working to do your master's because you have to have a lab support to do your project so I was doing the master's and after a year into the master's the pandemic hit <laughs> so it was going to work doing your master's pandemic and then Miss Galway kind of crept up <laughs> around the same time yeah so it was crazy nearly to be honest the pandemic kind of helped me out a little bit because I think it was actually a lot to take on all at the same time so um I suppose having the pandemic slow down my social life a little bit helped. <laughs> <laughs> and you were doing some work in the labs, is that right, during the pandemic with something to do with the, the COVID-19? Um, so, yeah, all the labs have, have something to do with COVID, um, the hospital labs for sure, because either way, your bloods are being sent to us. Um, so I worked in bio, but micro would test you for the covid um virus directly but we might test other things that has related to do with the covid it's like it's called a cytokine storm that's very sciencey now but anyway basically markers of inflammation or something that tells us what stage you are at um with the covid virus at the time so we would test different markers like that and we might test for antibodies as well for covid but as you said, Miss Galway came knocking and now you've started to spiral off <laughs> in a different direction. Will the lab code still feature in everything you're doing right now? Um, at the moment, I am not in the lab and, you know, because just I was doing everything for a while there and it was just getting a bit too much because at the end of the day, working in a lab is quite a serious thing you have human life in your hands and you have to really care for that and be responsible at that and you kind of you can't have your minds in many many different avenues when you're dealing in a high pressure environment like that you know like people can come in there critically and they need the result and you're wrecked already because i was working on call as well so you know i need to be sharp and on my game so I couldn't, I just had to let that side go for a little bit so that I can focus on this new adventure that I had. You know, I'm 26 now and it's a time in my life that I'm never going to get back, you know. So I wanted to do something adventurous and see where it leads me for a little while. And I'm enjoying it. And you were involved recently in a campaign for, is it medical students or lab workers? Oh, so basically it was... It was the strike that was going on for uh, medical scientists. Um, you know, we were asking for pay parity and I decided to join the strike just to help my colleagues. You know, even though I'm not in the lab at, right now, I still care about what happens to them. And it was just to do with like the conditions that we're working in. You know, we were overworked, um, the retention, the retention rate is not really great, you know, of staff, you know, you can't really attract students to work in an area when you have really bad conditions. And in the end of the day, people may not realize because just because you go into the hospital and you see your doctor and you see your nurse, you forget 
the person behind all of that is still a medical scientist who actually takes your blood and gets you the diagnosis you know you wouldn't know if your glucose is high of course maybe the doctors are able to tell certain things but to get the confirmation of everything it's down to the the medical scientists and our expertise so you you have to care about that sector as well and you also want to use your platform to give back so education was such a fundamental core part of you progressing in the world so you're involved in making sure anyone in direct provision or in the system has access to that tell us a bit about that um so i started my campaign as miss galway which carried on to my miss ireland campaign um to help children in direct provision and children's education in general and what i had been doing at the time um, whilst highlighting what's going on in direct provision I was also trying to highlight um, the issue that they were facing at that exact moment with the pandemic being that schools were closed and these kids wouldn't be able to be to do their homework at home because you know they can't afford to have laptops and iPads and all these things that maybe some families have and take for granted you know uh, it's not so simple in a direct provision position so I partnered with Variety the children's charity to help um, get some iPads into three direct provision so it was two direct provision centers and a refugee centers um, I got iPads into those centers and installed in a computer room so that kids can go in and you know be able to still do their homework and they can use that post pandemic time still you know to do whatever project that they need and it wasn't a case that i was just there handing out free ipads to every child now i would have loved to do that if i could have but you know it wasn't really like that i wanted to establish something that would keep going for our generations to come so we set up the computer room so that kids will always have access that live in the that particular cent- center and did that feel like a, a full circle moment for you? Yeah, no, it was great. Um, I remember it kind of stemmed from the Santa boxes. Um, we did a Santa box appeal and I remembered getting my Santa box and when I was in direct provision. And, you know, that was it's always an exciting time for me at Christmas to be able to receive something like that from someone. And, you know, I felt like doing this for another kid in direct provision, you know, they'll talk about that later in life and be like oh I remember when I was able to go and use the iPad in the center so it was it was good uh, and I did go to the Galway Direct Provision Center a lot and talk with the kids um, about different things I actually set up a day called uh, Day Out with Pam and I took them out to the cinema and everything and just you know hang out with them and chat so it's not always about oh you have to be in school kids you know it's also about making sure the kids well-being is good and that they're having fun so I incorporated that as well and the rules have changed now you can work in direct provision and we've been promised the direct provision is coming to an end how hopeful do you feel that that's actually a fact that that's actually going to happen and, and changes are happening like I know the rules have changed with regarding work um, but that does ne- not necessarily mean that everyone applies to that category so that's another thing people have to realize that just because they said that the, 
it doesn't actually apply to everyone in direct provision. Uh, if you're on a certain stage in your application, you're not allowed to work. Um, certain cases, work is too far away because a lot of these places are segregated, very, very rural, so it's very far away from the community. So it's hard to access work, especially when you couldn't get a driving license at the time. So how do you even, yeah, so it's complicated, you know? Um, and I know the white paper has stated that they are planning to put an end to it, uh, now an end to it. I don't know, does that mean it's gonna end completely or does that mean there's gonna be a new system? To be honest, in my opinion, I think that we should still be a country that helps people uh, in whatever way we can. And it's not necessarily the right answer to end direct provision altogether, but more so to look at how the system is being run now and make changes to, you know, that will better suit how to look after people rather than doing what was done to, let's say, me and my family. Um, I think that's a much more better situation for everyone moving forward yeah and I, I think that a lot with you know families that have arrived now from the Ukraine and I'm hoping lessons have been learned but I, I worry yeah that I the see, demand that's, that's different again <laughs> the whole Ukrainian situation you know uh, you have people um, for I'll, I'll start with this saying that of course um, of course we're going to be helping the people who have come from a situation such as Ukraine, you know, that is dire. We've seen what's going on there and I feel really sorry for them that they have been displaced in such a manner. Um, but you can already see the difference in how they were treated compared to a lot of different other countries were treated. You know, you come and people are literally like, oh, they can come into my house, you know, they can. Um, whereas, and they're not getting placed in necessarily in direct provision centers either you know um so that poses like a little challenge for people living in that center saying why are they getting treated different than me and let's say it could also be people from war-torn countries and they're not getting the same treatment as the ukrainians so we have to be careful on kind of how we manage the situation as a whole moving forward you yeah. know there should be one set system and it should be done properly for all the categories yeah, I agree. And I, I know there's a lot of people who came here from Syria who sort of looked on or who have campaigned on their behalf. Mm -hmm. I think as a people, Ireland felt bad for what has happened and wanted to atone mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. But there are Ukrainian families who have come from that who are in direct provision mm -hmm. situations as right well. now. Mm -hmm. um, families who are opening their doors who aren't necessarily receiving the right amount of yeah. support. This is why there should be one set way to to deal with all of this in a correct way um because right now i think nobody knows what's going on or what they're doing anymore you know um i just hope that all of all of the situations that have arose that you know the government looks at this and tries to find a plan in the end of the day we're also a country that is struggling with a housing crisis as well so we also have to pay that in mind um on how we deal with things it's not like you know we have enough room for everything that's happening right now so we also have to look at how do we prevent this housing crisis from continuing and fixing it you know yeah so that the supply can meet the demand but yeah. i think ultimately at the center of all of it the priority should be around integration mm -hmm. and community Com yeah. support absolutely yeah. 
Well, enjoy the rest of your <laughs> adventure and where it may take you, who knows. But I love that you're just jumping into all of this Miss Ireland and all the doors that it's it's opening up. Um, and I think the world really is your oyster. Thank you for using your voice to speak up about your experience and about what you learned. And I wish you nothing but the best. Pamela Uba, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me and I appreciate being on this and having this conversation because through conversation this is where we can make proper change. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.